interim pastor, and I am greatly blessed to be with you in, in this fellowship and in this role for the season that God has set aside. As you can see this morning, uh, it's our habit here at Applewood to enjoy communion on the first Sunday of the month. And so if your mind wanders this morning, especially during my sermon, as sometimes I hear it does, if your mind happens to wander today, let it wander to the table. Don't let it wander to the other stuff. The other stuff really doesn't matter all that much. Let the table push out all the distractions of the world. You can listen into the sermon. Remember the blood and the body of Christ. On, on these Sundays, it is the habit, the habit of Applewood to receive a, um, benevolence, uh, offering as well. And we, Collect that and use that for the financial benefit of those in need. And so you may or may not be remembering that this morning. We have uh, boxes in the back and you can mark a special gift kind of above and beyond your regular tithe or offering. And we will use that specifically to bless those in our congregation and others in a place of need. So I have a couple of things, um, housekeeping things that I've been sort of biting my tongue over and I'm not going to anymore. Here we go. Have you seen this? You may be a little under-aware. Pull out your bulletin. There's a little piece of paper on the end of your bulletin. And you're going, oh, yeah, I knew about that. There's, it's called a connection corner. And it allows us to connect. And at the bottom of one side is a little place for you to give us input. Actually, the what caught my eye is this little place at the bottom where it says prayer request. For instance, this week, I'll cry thinking about it, but this week, a dear friend of mine goes in for surgery uh, for cancer. She has a very large mass, and she goes in on Wednesday. And I'm going to fill out one of these cards, one of these, and I'm going to put it in that box in the back, and maybe you'll hear about that, and you'll remember to pray for Lynn. And so you too, uh, beginning this uh, communion Sunday can write out a prayer request and, in, and invite the body into doing what the body does and that's connecting and caring one for another. It's here all the time and all the time you don't do anything with it. <laughs> Rarely anyway. So let's, let's start to participate in the, the worship of prayer one to another by just taking a moment and filling that out and sliding that back into uh, the offering box in the back. I think that's as close as I'm going to come to a guilt trip. I think that, that hopefully you didn't feel too bad about that. It's an encouragement trip. We'll do that. Oh, I can do a guilt trip now. This is perfect timing. So Karen very nicely invited you to the annual meeting next week. And I could, from here... I could feel the eyes rolling into the back of your head. Uh, I could hear it. And this particular annual meeting, I think you'll want to come to and you'll want to be prayed up for because there'll be some conversation about the search and some important family business. We'll be uh, electing or affirming um, council members or uh, leadership team members. So it's kind of a big deal. So if you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'm going to be sick next Sunday. 
I would say get over that sickness now and just come. Just come and participate and pray and participate in the business of the life of the church next Sunday. It's important. How about that? So, and you're going to be here anyway. Just stick around. It's going to be fun. Yay, annual meeting. <laughs> I'm not sure you meant that, but that's great. Yeah, okay, all right, all right. So I broke my light already. There we go. All right. We should pray. Ah, <laughs> oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your kindness for this beautiful church and other churches in the area, Lord, that uh, even now, even this moment perhaps, are lifting you up and, um, and exploring the heart of worship even now. We think of St. John's Episcopal over here on 28th. We think of Glory of God Lutheran over east of us here on 38th. We think of other churches this morning in our community that we pray, Father, lift up your light, the truth of your gospel, and we'll celebrate you in spirit and in truth this morning. And so all who do, Father, we pray your mercy and presence. Father, we think of those in our bulletin this week. We get a, a jump start in praying for the Pews and the Schwarzes, for uh, Kim and Doug. Father, we're praying for them this week. We also are praying for uh, the Showers, uh, Cindy and Nathan. We see that Emmeline's, Emmeline's got a birthday today. Sorry, Emmeline. Uh, for the Schultzes, for uh, Bob and Carol Ski. Father, we pray your mercy over uh, Linda and Tim. Father, these are a few, but it is in our prayer one for another that we will begin to experience the fullness of life together. And so, Father, we do lift these up in prayer. And I am becoming aware of others, Father, in the congregation that are also doing battle against cancer, against life-threatening circumstances, Father. I know of hurt and disappointment, of circumstances where we wish it were different. Father, in these circumstances, I pray for courage. I pray for healing and strength. I pray for a grace that is sustaining. We pray it in the name of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Jill, for that nice, enthusiastic amen. Uh, that was great. <laughs> More of that. Yeah. So, <clears throat> last week, I don't know if you remember, I, I went off my script a little bit. I kind of set things aside and just kind of went off. And I wanted to say that while I went off my script, I didn't go off the script of Scripture, nor did I even go off the script of Philippians. Uh, what, what I was sharing was from deep within uh, the Scriptures. And so I want to review a little bit because it, it occurred to me that I needed to build on that just a smidge. Last week we talked about the Gospel, didn't we? We spent a good deal of time unpacking the Gospel. And we decided that the gospel was good news. In fact, what we decided was that the gospel was great news. It was the best news you've ever, ever, ever heard or could imagine. Which is, which is in contrast, because when you've got good news, you must have bad news to compare it to. Apparently in 
It's actually the very worst of all possible news. But what we learned is that, is that prior to knowing Christ, we're not only just lost, we are in fact enemies of God. We're an enmity with him. And so that's a real problem. I mean, lost is one thing. To be dead is something else. To be dead in our trespasses, to have no spiritual life before I know Christ. And then Christ comes and he gives me life and then I begin to enjoy the very good news, right? I live into this new hope, a grand new transformed life. And remember, we use the, the word picture of how we respond to that, that gospel by saying that if, if the kingdom of this world is over here with all of its lies, the impotent idols of the world of, of prestige and power and wealth and anything else that goes with that, fame and fortune, if this is the kingdom of the world, we would turn our back on it. We would renounce it. We would say it has no meaning to me. In fact, it, it distracts me. It holds me back. It's like a, a shackle or an anchor that holds me back from my journey from the kingdom of the world and to the kingdom of God that he calls me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. When we begin to get this imagery, the scriptures begin to take on a special new clarity when we begin to put on our gospel of the kingdom lenses. We begin to see how all of scripture is knit into this idea of his calling out a people to himself as a living witness, as an eternal living sacrifice of praise to the God Almighty, the church eternal. It's a grand hope. And so, and so we talked about that last week of what it means to renounce the world, to renounce that. And that's actually what repentance is. Sometimes I guess we think, and not right, wrongly so, that repentance is sorrow. I'm sorry about my sin. And of course, when I recognize my sin, there'll be a flush of emotions, sorrow being one of them, but also regret and shame, maybe even uh, self-loathing, all kinds of emotions could well up. It's not about the emotion, though that's natural and expected. What it's about is changing our mind. That's what the word means, repent, is to change our mind. I no longer put my mind here, I put my mind on the kingdom. So that's what we talked about last week, and I want to build on that. The reason I know this is true is because Jesus said so. We can go to the scriptures and we can identify. So if you have your Bible with me, turn to Matthew chapter 6, to a very familiar passage in the Sermon on the Mount. So you'll hear me talking a lot about the kingdom of God because I am taken with that doctrine. Turns out, so is Jesus. And so, and so, Virtually all that he teaches about is about the gospel of the kingdom and the kingdom of God. And this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is what it, what it would be if you as a kingdom citizen lived authentically on earth according to the rules of the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of the world. He's contrasting them and showing 
how it is that we are to live in the here and now, in the kingdom of God now, not waiting for it, but enjoying it now. And so he says things like this in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures, this is chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moss and rusts destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Don't invest in that kingdom. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, that kingdom, where neither moss, <laughs> moss nor rust, just teasing, where neither <laughs> moth nor, don't do it, don't, don't play, uh, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For the, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Later, he goes on to say in verse 24, I think, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of mammon, the kingdom of money, the kingdom of things, of stuff, of power and prestige and stuff. You can't serve them both. I don't know, I'm looking around, I'm thinking there might be one or two Bob Dylan fans. Could be. I'm a Bob Dylan fan. In his, uh, in his Jesus season, he wrote a song, you gotta serve somebody. Serve somebody. So, so my Bob Dylan isn't that great, but he's not very great for that matter. And, uh, and so he acknowledged that you're gonna serve somebody. And he said, then you better serve the Lord. I'd agree with him. That's good theology. So let's keep going. We want to have some time to linger over the table. So let's go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3 then, and let's go back into our outline, because even Paul is acknowledging this returning from the world and turning to the kingdom. He is writing about it in Philippians chapter 3. Galatians? All right. And I want to turn you, uh, turn you, I want to uh, bring us to verse 7. Paul takes a moment where he sort of reflects out loud. It's a Stream of consciousness. He's thinking about himself. He's thinking about his life. He's thinking about this moment, this uh, response that he had when Jesus called him and when he turned his back on the world and all of his credentials, his, his long list of credentials, and he turned his back on them. And he said, now I'm going to put my attention on the kingdom because I don't know what I was thinking when I was building my own kingdom and participating in the kingdom of the world. I don't know what I was thinking. I got locked up in religious think rather than God. And he says, whatever gain I had in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. See, in light of who Jesus is, everything takes on a diminished value. Everything over there hardly matters. I can't believe I put any value in that. Not against that treasure. What was I thinking? This is Paul. Me too. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Let's jump down a little bit now to verse 12. 
And this, this is, I don't know that I have a life verse, but if I did, this is probably it. And then he talks about his walk. His walk from here to over there, and he's writing as he walks. And he says, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Jesus Christ has made me his own. And he says, brothers and sisters, I don't consider that I have made it on my own. I didn't do this, but the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, forgetting what lies behind, the sadness, the victories that I thought I enjoyed over there, all of that, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call to what lies ahead, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What a thought. What a thought that as I turn my back on the world and I set my eyes on Jesus, that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. What a kindness. What He has called us into. There's still a problem for me. Because Paul, a little bit earlier in Philippians chapter 1, in the verse, in verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that tricks me up. That's, a, that's a, like a ten-word sentence. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Paul says. Well, what in the world do you mean by that, Paul? What is it to live in Christ? That's kind of an unusual thing. We talked a little bit about it last week. But what does that mean, to live in Christ? that Christ would live in me and I would live in Christ. How does that actually flesh its way out? And so I want to talk about what does it mean to live in Christ. For me, to live is Jesus and to die is gain. Uh, Kim read it to us earlier in Galatians. We'll look at it in a minute. I don't, have to, I don't have to say it now. We'll do it later. Never mind. Hold that. So I want to talk about that this morning. I want to do one more sort of walk-around word picture for you because this idea of living in Christ, what it means when I turn my back and I'm walking that way, how am I supposed to walk? What does the walk look like? I want to know what that is because I'm tripped up over that and I, I'm experiencing, I talk to people and they say, you know what, I, I love Jesus but I just don't get him. I don't get the Christian life. I still live with anxiety. I still live with worry. I still live with anger. I still live with these feelings. I, I, I get bored in church. I hardly want to come. I, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem to be working for me. I hear that. People go through these dry seasons. People actually live there for a long period of time. I don't know. I don't get it. I just don't get it right now. Here's... Here's the problem, I think, with this curse of striving and the shackles of sin. I'm going to try this this time. So I want you to imagine a teeter-totter in front of you, something like this. Ta-da! Pretty close. I think that was my fault. I was early. So... So imagine a teeter-totter in front of you. Now, I've preached this uh, two or three times with an actual teeter-totter. 
once about killed myself. So I decided not to do the teeter-totter this morning in favor of my ankles. So imagine in front of you on the right-hand side uh, a teeter-totter tipping towards freedom. Now freedom, who doesn't love freedom? Freedom in Christ. That's a great thing. The trouble is we sometimes translate freedom into freedom to sin rather than freedom in Christ. We translate it as license, as license and licentiousness becomes the habit. And so I go over here and I practice freedom, freedom. Oh, I love freedom. And then I begin to enjoy uh, actually uh, the world. I dive back into the world and I start thinking about stuff of the world and I'm over here and I'm experiencing the shame and the guilt and the sadness and even sort of the death of what sin brings to my life and I don't like it. And so I say to myself, oh, I got to get back to the Christian life. I'm out of the Christian life. So I'm going to make my way across the teeter-totter and I'm going to work my way back to the law because the law, of course, is good. The law tells me right from wrong, and it gives me a way uh, to live. And so I'm going to do my Bible studies, and I'm going to journal, and I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to do all the religious things that I know in order to have life in Christ. The trouble is, just as freedom can become license, law can become legalism. And now I'm following after all the religious trappings of Christ and not Christ himself. And this is a deal, folks. This is a problem for us. Because I'm going to say some 75% of Christians think this is the Christian life. Walking back and forth from going over here, going, oh, this isn't right. I need to go over here. And then I go over here and I say, oh, this isn't any fun. And so I go over here. And they walk back and forth on this thing. And they're trying to find a place where they balance out. Oh, I'm trying to balance this puppy out right here. And the trouble is, now, is that's a lot of work. I'm working all the time to keep this thing balanced. I, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. And the things of the world are moving me around a little bit. And then the other thing that happens, and I don't like this either, is that I start looking around and I try and judge where I'm standing based on what you look like and what you're doing. So I stand here and I think, well, I'm better than y'all. Y'all a bunch of sinners over there. I'm better than you. And so then I look over there and I say, oh, look at all those religious people doing all those religious things and they look really religiously smart and they pray really good and stuff. Oh, I'm not as good as those guys and so oh, I should work harder. And I find myself working my way across this thing until I'm exhausted and disappointed and confused and powerless. And I think to myself, this is the Christian life. It's awful. Who wants this? No one wants this. No one wants this. We just don't know what else there is. All I see is some dance, some exercise routine that goes between legalism and freedom, so-called license, and I just guess I'm just, like everyone else, I'm just trying to find my place. <sighs> How exhausting. So, when we think of license, our head goes to Romans in chapter 6, where Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, no. How can we who died to sin live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, and they were therefore buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Legalism, there's a verse that Paul writes about. He writes to the Galatians from the same prison that he writes to the Philippians. And he says, you, you foolish Galatians in chapter 3, who bewitched you? You fell back into law. For all, for all who are... Uh, who are for all who are of works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. So that would be us, right? That would be everyone. And so he goes on to say no, uh, that no one is justified by the law. So we, we can't win on this teeter-totter. We've got death on both sides of this teeter-totter. No one wants to live here. So now we have to ask ourselves, so just like Paul who says, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who will rescue me off of this teeter-totter? Somebody help! Get me off of this thing! I'm dying here! Well, I'd help you, but I'm on the teeter-totter with you. I really, I really don't know my way out. And so, Jesus is saying there is a better way. He's saying you can just get off the teeter-totter altogether. And you can abide in me. And what that means is to actually, let's see, go ahead, um, friend. Let's go to the next one uh, the other way. There we go. So we're just going to get off that thing. But it makes you wonder, kind of like that trapeze, when you jump on and you swing over and then you have to let go and you're hoping that the other trapeze is there waiting for you. Because you're going to turn and grab the new one, right? Whoa, whoa, ah. Because this is what you know. This is what you've grown good at. Too many of us Christians is this walking back and forth and the complacency that comes with us and the expectation that this is the best there is. And Jesus says, no, you can let go of that. You can let go of that and jump into my arm. And you can abide in me. Because no one wants the exhaustion, no one wants the shame, the comparing, the bored powerlessness of walking back and forth in the Christian life. No one wants that. So we abide. We practice abiding. Jesus has invited us to a new place off of that worthless journey back and forth to a place of resting in Him. He says this in John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes that away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be bear more fruit. What that says right there is there's going to be some suffering. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And then he says in verse 4, abide in me. You want to deal with all that? Come. Come ye who are weak and heavy laden. Come and have rest in me. He says, come and abide in me as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. For I am the vine and you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. In Christ and in his name, everything matters. Outside of Christ and outside of his name, 
nothing matters. Not in terms of eternity. So, I'm recognizing that, um, that this is hard. This idea that I have been crucified with Christ, as it says in Galatians chapter 2. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm abiding with Christ. Where's Christ? He's in heaven. So I'm abiding with Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, look it up later. It says, for your life is hidden with Christ in heaven. What? Wait, I'm here. Well, yeah, except that in some mysterious way, believer, your life is hidden now once and for all with Christ in heaven. And he is abiding in you. And that's why Paul can say, I don't live here anymore. It is Christ who lives in me. And so I live by his power according to his rules for his profit. And it's a whole new life. And now I'm not bored anymore. Now I'm not powerless anymore because I'm living in his power. We need to get to the table. And the table is a curious worship expression, isn't it? It's a table of both death and life. He invites us, our Lord does, to enjoy his blood and his body. Shed for us, broken for us. That we might know real life. Because that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to shine. He wants our life to be so amazingly attractive that those in the darkness would say, I'm going to follow you out of here. It's so dark in here, I can't find my way. I'm going to follow you out of that darkness into whatever light you know. And so he's inviting us by the table into a moment of reflection and worship whereby we recognize that it's by his blood and his brokenness alone by which we now live. Maybe you know the story. A friend of Jesus uh, by the name of Lazarus, he died. In John chapter 11, Mary and Martha, his friends, come to him and say, where were you? Actually, it was Martha, mostly. And Martha comes to him and says, where were you? If it had gotten here sooner, uh, your friend Lazarus would still be alive. You, you could have healed him. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Even yet, though he dies, they will live. And then he turns to Martha and he says, do you believe this? That's a moment, isn't it? Do you believe this? Uh, what are you saying? What are you, <laughs> what are you saying to me? What are, you, what are you asking me in this moment? Do you believe? Do you believe that you have the power over death itself? He says, Lazarus, roll away the stone. Come forth. And he calls Lazarus, four days dead, to life. Calls into eternity. And Lazarus, I, the mental image in my mind is like, he, <laughs> you're all wrapped up in grave clothes, aren't you? How do you do that? 
So I'm not sure how that works. I'm, I'm waiting for that chapter in The Chosen to find out how that works. So, but um, this is what he says next. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. See, when you're all wrapped up in your own death clothes, you can't do anything about it. You're lost. It's hopeless. But together, at the command of Christ, we can take off each other's grave clothes. And we can live together in a new life, dependent and celebrating each other. Let's pray. So, Father, it is indeed... Your, your son, your life, that has saved us. We are about now to participate in the table and to enjoy the worship that you gave us on the night that you were betrayed. And on that night, anticipating your own death, you shared a last intimate expression with the disciples. Not only did you wash their feet, but you gave them this beautiful expression of what it means to worship you into the kingdom. And so, Father, we come before you now in that same spirit, enjoying that same dinner. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name. Amen. So indeed, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks and he took bread and he blessed it. He gave thanks for that bread and then he took that bread and he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. And he said, take this and eat of it. Let me come and abide in you. And then, but little, a little later that same evening, he took the cup and pouring out the cup, he said, this is uh, a cup. I'm, I'm scared for this. This is the cup of the new covenant. A new way of enjoying God. A new way of doing business with God. The old covenant required that you try and make it work by the law, knowing that it could never work. But the new covenant says that now in my son, I can invite you into the kingdom cloaked in my righteousness. The righteousness of my blood. As I understand it, within the covenant, this table is an open table for all those who are, as the covenant used to say, true believers. And that, of course, is up to you. Have you renounced the world with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, turned your mind and heart as far as you can right now, as he as he draws you into perfection, even as Paul said, not that I've attained it, but I got my eye on it. 
If you, like Paul, can say that, then this table is, of course, for you. Regardless of whether you're a covenanter, whether you're brand new to our church, this table is for you. We have two plates with uh, regular bread. I have some gluten-free here in the center. And I believe it's our habit that uh, we come forward and dip the bread into the cup and... uh, and so we will enjoy that now. We will linger over it. We will take our time because it's a worthy table, isn't it? And so, Father, thank you. Thank you for this table and for these who will dine so richly. Thank you that you have satisfied our every need in Christ Jesus. And that through him, we will find the hope and strength to walk towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.